Amen. We're all in this together, aren't we, Joe? That's a good thing. Well, today is a Pentecost Sunday. Uh, and for the church, this is truly a, a, a glorious day. Uh, you see, without the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost, we, do, we don't have the church. In fact, without the coming of the Spirit, we really don't even have uh, the New Testament. Because it is with this coming of the Spirit on Pentecost that the church is born. So on this Pentecost Sunday, we are looking at this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. And, and we're going to take a close look at all of Acts chapter Two. This is one of the most studied uh, chapters of the Bible. In fact, whole denominations are formed on this one chapter alone. And so I want to give you just a brief outline uh, of the chapter. It, it can kind of be divided into three main parts. The first part is what Joe just read for us, the pouring of the Spirit on the disciples and their empowerment. The second section is Peter as he's giving this uh, sermon to the people there. This is a uh, verses 14 through 41, and then uh, the third section of chapter 2 is kind of the first summary passage of the activity of the church, the, uh, the early believers, verses 42 through 47. And, and this has incredible significance for us uh, as a body of Christ, as the church, this event on Pentecost. You see, Pentecost finished this divine plan of God through Jesus, and it's easy for us to sometimes to separate out these events that are taking place like Christmas and Easter and Good Friday and, and Pentecost as, as separate events. And they are separate, uh, take place at separate times, but, but in effect they are part of one divine plan of God. This is one divine plan. Pentecost is an essential part of God's plan of Jesus transforming his people on earth. So today is a day of, of celebration, in a sense. It's, it's our birthday, in a sense, the people of God as the church, this event on Pentecost. And so we celebrate the outpouring of the Spirit on all of us, not just on some, but all of us as Christians have been given this gift of the spirit that dwells within us, that gives us power to be witnesses. And so that's what today is about. Uh, and I can't think of a, a more exciting day to be a part of church than Pentecost. It's like Christmas. It's like Easter. It is a day of celebration. It is a day of expectation. In fact, if you were here last week, we, we examined the summary statement of what Acts was from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you remember that verse, I just said it just a second ago, where we get this summary statement from Jesus. And he says, you will receive, what's the word? Power to be my witnesses here in, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's that summary statement that the disciples are given that tells them what is about to take place. And one of the things I encouraged you this last week also is to have a spirit of expectation. See, when, when Jesus gave this, to, this mandate to his disciples, you're going to receive power. It, it also is this, this spirit of expectation that something's going to happen. And, and that's the way we should live as disciples of Jesus, is that spirit of expectation that something 
is going to happen. That God is going to show up. And we should live that way. So how did you do this last week? Did you have that spirit of expectation? You know, sometimes it takes us some time to get in that habit if we don't have that habit. Was there an opportunity for you this last week to share Christ or to share the church? I hope you took advantage of those opportunities. Or if you missed them, I hope you're aware that you missed them. And then you're going to try again this week, right? Because we need to be living with that spirit of expectation. I had several opportunities this last week to talk about the church and, and about uh, what we're doing. And, and even in reflection, I was thinking to myself, you know, I could have done this as well. And I missed that. And so we need to live with that spirit of expectation that God will move. And that should be a part of our prayer as well. God, give me that spirit of expectation. So let's uh, just dive into our scripture here. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost had come, uh, they, had all come they were all together in one place. So again, this morning, we gather together here in one place. And we need to understand that Pentecost, that for the Jews and, and for us, it's one of the, the major holidays of the Jewish people. And it took place 50 days after Passover. The pent in Pentecost means five. And, and it also is called the Festival of Weeks. It was, it was a one-day festival where special sacrifices were made. And originally, it was a festival of the harvest or of first fruits. What are the first fruits? Well, if, if you think about it, if you had a, an olive grove or, or grapes or, or a harvest, that first part of the crop, the best part you gave to God, right? That's the first fruits. It's a thanksgiving offering. It's an offering acknowledging that all that we have is a gift of God. And so we give back the first, the best, back to God. So here in Pentecost is this offering of our first fruits back to God. And there's this interesting parallel that we have going on here with Pentecost in the Jewish tradition and in a Christian tradition as well. It's because it's on this Pentecost that we read later on in chapter 2 that we have the first fruits of the church as 3,000 people are brought into belief in Jesus Christ. They are, in a sense, the first fruits of Pentecost. And Pentecost is also associated with the giving of the law from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. You remember that story? You know the story. You know, the people of Israel, they're in slavery in Egypt. And Moses comes down and says, let my people go. And then uh, Pharaoh and Passover and all that. And they go through the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness. And they come to Mount Sinai and the cloud and the, and the storm is raging on the mount. And all the people say, Moses, you go up there and talk to God. We don't want you, we want you do it. And so Moses went up on the mountain and God spoke to him in the cloud and gave them the law. Remember that story? This is the story. Uh, this Pentecost is also associated with that story, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And there's a fascinating writing from uh, a first century uh, philosopher, uh, historian. His name was Philo, and we have his writing still. And, and Philo wrote before Luke wrote in Acts. But, but here's what Philo, a Jew, talks about what, what the giving of the, uh, of the law was on Mount Sinai. He says this, then from the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven, there sounded forth to their utter amazement a voice. For the flame became the articulate speech in the language familiar 
to the audience. This is what Philo wrote about how the Jews viewed the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Does it sound familiar to what's going on right now at Pentecost with these believers as as the flame is coming down and they're speaking in a voice that is familiar to the audience? So we have these rich images, the first fruits, the giving of the law, and now we have these new first fruits, these 3,000 converts, and the pouring out, the giving of the Spirit so that they could understand. So that the giving of the Spirit is, is given in kind of parallel to the giving of the law. You, you see these images coming forth on Pentecost and how important it is if we're to truly understand Acts that we have to understand the rest of the story in the Old Testament as well. And so we have these disciples. They're gathered together. They're waiting for the Spirit. And it isn't just the 12 disciples, but it, it says there's about a group of 120 that are waiting in expectation. In fact, they'd been waiting together for 10 days because it, it says, we remember this last week, uh, it was 40 days after the resurrection that Jesus ascended. We talked about that last Sunday. And Pentecost is 50 days after. And so they've been waiting for 10 days. Gather together. And the text says that the, the Spirit falls down on them like tongues of fire. And I think God had a reason for them to wait until Pentecost because he knew that Jerusalem would be filled with all of these Jews who were coming to celebrate and bring their first fruits. And all the people from around the area, uh, there would be thousands of crowds coming to witness this. And, and they would soon witness this outpouring of God's Spirit. And these 120 believers, they begin to speak to the crowds in their own language. And the crowds are amazed and bewildered and saying, how can these Galileans, how can these rednecks understand our native tongue? Some even thought they were drunk because that's what rednecks do, right? <laughs> and, and, and they, all in the crowds, they, they were asking, what does this mean? What does this mean? It's a good question. Here's what it means. It means that God's Spirit can overcome any and all barriers, any and all obstacles. It doesn't matter if you know the language. God, through His Spirit, can overcome anything in order that the whole world would know of His gift of love. It means that we, His people, should rely on His Spirit to overcome any and all barriers that keep us from sharing that love to the ends of the earth, right? We talked about that last week. What? You will receive what? Power to be my what? Witnesses. And here we see that with the disciples. They have received that power and now they're being witnesses. That's what we are called to do. And then we get to the second major section of this text where Peter stands up and he preaches, answering the crowd. This is the first Christian sermon. The first time a crowd hears the fulfillment of the gospel. And, and Peter uses as his sermon text uh, the prophet Joel uh, from the Old Testament. Joel uh, writes these words. He says this, uh, Peter quotes, In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a great prophecy. What a great sermon text. And, and here we see this fulfillment. This is the last days as, all, as they are being poured out. The Spirit is upon them and all can be saved. Not just Jews, but all of us. 
Now, Peter is speaking to a Jewish crowd, and he is proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that everything that they have read in Scripture culminates in Jesus. In fact, Peter also refers to three other Old Testament uh, scriptures, two from Psalms and one from 2 Samuel, to emphasize his point of how Jesus fulfills this promise. But more than that, he proclaims, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just you, but you and I. And the sermon with the power of the Spirit has its desired effect on the crowd because the text says that the people were cut to the heart And this time they ask the question, what should we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a great verse. You see, it's not just enough to be sorry for our sins. We actually have to repent of them. We must let God forgive them. And then we need to live like forgiven people. Then we need to be transformed and not continue to go down the wrong paths. We have, repentance actually means you're going one way and to repent means you stop and you turn around and you go the other direction. That's what it means to repent and be baptized, all of you in the name of Christ. You see, because God gives us that spirit and, and, and see, we We just don't need more information about God. We need transformation of our hearts. And we need to have a sense of urgency in this message as well. And and that's what we see the disciples is they had this sense of urgency because they understood rightly so they were ending. They were living in the end times. In this time in between Jesus will come again in which we don't know when he will come. But between then and then... We know that we are to be witnesses, that we should be gathering people into our community of faith. And we should have a sense of urgency because people need to repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Spirit. Do you think that our world needs that gift of repentance and baptism? I think so. See, this is the serious, urgent, expectant business of the church. To proclaim the message of hope to the world. A world that is living in end times. The crowd that day, many responded immediately and were transformed. And it says 3,000 were added to the kingdom that day. And then Luke gives us a summary statement of how the church lived in those early days. This is the third section of chapter 2. And then in this summary statement, so often we've read it and we kind of just gloss over it and say, wow, that was cool. That'll never happen again. <laughs> because it, it's kind of beyond what we would expect. It's beyond what we see actually happening in the church. And we see that even those early disciples, they had a hard time continuing in that uh, be, because of sin and because of things that we aren't truly transformed and we try to control God. But, but here Luke gives us a summary statement of what should happen when we are transformed by the Spirit. How the church should live. What they did and how they did it. And I think we have a lot to learn from the early church. In fact, in a minute we're going to read this whole section. But before I, before I read it, I have to let you know that Unfortunately, we in the West have been brought up in a church tradition 
that is very different from what the church should be. What a body of Christ should be. American Christians, I think we have, we have been duped by Satan, by our culture, even, even by the church at times, into a false belief about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But here we have a summary statement about what it means to be the church. When the church is at its best. When the church is doing what it should be doing. When the body of Christ is truly the body of Christ. And I'm not sure many of us can handle that or truly understand that. Everything that, you know, we've been talking about, and we can't do this on our own. We have to have the Spirit guide us in this. But here we go with a little bit of fear and trembling. Acts 2, 42 through 47 says this. They devoted themselves, they devoted themselves They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. There it is. That's the summary. That is the goal of what the church should look like. And I want to break it down for us so we can see it a little clearer. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. First, to the apostles' teaching. It's important. Second, to fellowship. The word is koinonia in the Greek. This is much more than just having coffee and cookies together on Sunday morning. This is living life together, even at a personal sacrifice. Koinonia, fellowship. And then the third, the breaking of bread, both in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take here in a minute, and actually eating meals together, being the church together. And then the fourth one, in prayer. That's what the church is. Teaching, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And what does it say about these four things? What's the word that is used to describe how they did, they, did these? They devoted themselves. What, what does devote mean? What does devote mean? It, it, it's to be earnest towards. It's to persevere, to be constantly diligent, uh, to attend specifically to something, continually to wait on. I think some of us haven't really understood what that means when we say devote. It doesn't say they showed up when it was convenient for them and there wasn't some sporting event in the way. It, it doesn't say they studied only if they had a little extra time at the end of the day. Nor does it say they prayed every so often. It doesn't say they gave a little of their time, little of their energy, little of their money, a little bit of their family, and a little bit of their talent. What does it say? They devoted themselves. See, here's where we get it backwards. The American church especially, we we mix things up. And I'm going to step on your toes. You ready? We worship what we're devoted to. 
And so often I see our culture worshiping other things. Can we name them without being shot down? Football? Basketball? Soccer? Anything else but? Right? They're there. Now those things aren't bad in themselves. But what are you devoted to? Because if we are a disciple, a mature disciple of Jesus Christ, then this is what we should be devoted to. They were so devoted, in fact, that the text gives us an extreme example of the measures they went to in order to have koinonia, fellowship. They held all things in common. Selling their goods and possessions in order to build up the body of Christ, the church. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. This is not some form of communism at all. At all. This isn't a sense in which there wasn't private property. You have to understand the Jewish people, they held property and it was their, theirs. But, but here, don't misread that. But rather, it described the idea that no one claimed the exclusive right to whatever property they had. So that if a need arose, the people would sell what they had in order to meet the need of the church. To take care of fellow believers. That's, that's what it meant. Because the need of the body of Christ, the church, was more important than my own personal need. The need of the body of Christ was primary. We, the church, need to learn how to live in the light of Pentecost. Because the world doesn't need a church that gives a little bit of their time, a little bit of their energy, a little bit of their money, a little bit of their family, and a little bit of their talent. The world needs a church that is devoted. A church that is devoted, the church that senses the urgency and the proclamation of the world to the world that, that needs to be forgiven that needs to live in hope, that needs to be baptized in Jesus' name, the church that is devoted to the apostles' teaching, to koinonia, to fellowship, the breaking of bread together, and a prayer. That's what the world needs. That's what the church needs. We have been praying since February for revival, right? For the church. See, too often we want revival in the church, but we forget that revival starts here. It's going to start with me doing that. 